0: It's a joy to be back here in York and exciting to see how the Lord is blessing the ministry of his word here. Uh, I can think back a, f- a few short years to looking out, uh, filling in the pulpit and seeing maybe 10, 15 people. Um, had a few people that would volunteer on and off. Uh, Nancy would come down from the Harrisburg Church where she was going at the time, play piano. But Now we have a worship team here. And the pews are filling in. Praise be to God for the things that he's doing, raising up elders and strengthening the body of Christ here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church. Uh, As Matt had mentioned, I'm Steve Del Duca. I'm one of the pastors at the Harrisburg Church. And some of you may know I'm kind of filling in on your elder board, too, and trying to provide some guidance and help uh, as this church is uh, continuing to grow. Uh, in this area. Uh, have you been reading through Genesis? Is that what your morning scripture reading is? Well, that's awesome. And it was a great passage this morning that will tie in very neatly with what I am going to be doing. And we're going to give you a little peek forward today as we get into Genesis uh, 44 and 45. Fantastic passage in the Bible. A wonderful story. A great picture uh, of what God does through difficulties and how he redeems them for his purposes. Uh, it's the climax of a class that I've been teaching up in, in Harrisburg. We've been working through Genesis, and uh, it's taken us about three quarters of a year, and now we're finally getting to the Joseph story and coming to uh, the end of that. And uh, Truth be told, this is something that I was supposed to be teaching this morning in Harrisburg. And I didn't want to give this passage up. Uh, I had to preach it. I had to teach it. Uh, so you're going to get the benefits of that. And hopefully I will, too, as I get to share this. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning because I want to catch you up to speed with what's going on in the Joseph story. And even what we'll be reading here, you know, covering uh, almost two chapters is an ambitious endeavor. Uh, I hope not to leave out any important details, but hopefully we, we catch you right up and you can dive right into the story. Um, I appreciate Jason praying for us, and we are ready to dive right into uh, the Word of God. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 44. I'm going to start us off with just the first 12 verses, but we'll pick our way through this together this morning. Then he, speaking of Joseph here, commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you have said. He was found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. And each man opened his sack. Then he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, 22 years prior uh, to the events recorded in this chapter, you know the story very well. In a fit of jealousy, in a despicable act of utter callousness, the Joseph's brothers turned their back. On him. Years of dysfunction in the house of Jacob come to a head. Now, you get a picture this morning in our scripture reading where that dysfunction came from. Jacob learned it from his father Isaac. Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored uh, Jacob, uh, and brother was pit against brother, and Jacob eventually had to flee from his home and live in a land far away. It seems the things that he has learned he has carried into his own house, uh, showing favoritism to certain sons and certain wives and uh, really causing an unhealthy situation in his home. Now, this this 22 years prior, a 17-year-old boy, Joseph, was sent by his father, Jacob, to check on the well-being of his brothers, check on their shalom, their peace. He's sent to go find them in a land where they are pasturing their flock. And he has to search far and wide, but he finally tracks them down. And when he does, the brothers greet him with a warm hug and say, how you doing, brother? No, they pounce on him. They take him and they throw him into a pit. Interesting thought here. Joseph is sent to check on the shalom of his brothers. His brothers, it says earlier back in chapter 737, couldn't even say shalom to Joseph. They hated him that much. They hated the favorite brother, the one who got the nice coat, the one who got to stay home while they went out and did the work of shepherding the flock. Now, Joseph surely would have died in the pit uh, that his brothers threw him into if it were not for the chance passing of some Ishmaelite merchants. The brothers, seeing an opportunity, thought, well, maybe it's better we make some coin off of this than just kill him and have blood on our hands. So they sell him into slavery. Now, sometimes we know a story so well that we gloss over some of the details, but we need to pause here. We know how the story ends, so maybe we don't pause to think how atrocious this whole event is. This is the picture of evil. Brother turns against brother, seeking at first to kill him. And then, in a sense, they take his life by selling him into slavery. This is the worst of betrayals. This is absolutely sickening. But God's up to something. Joseph goes down to Egypt as a slave and through a series of events, he rises to the position of governor over all of Egypt, second only to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. His journey begins as a slave in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. But from Potiphar's house, he finds himself in jail, wrongly accused of raping Potiphar's wife. He didn't even touch her. Joseph spends 13 years in Egypt, either in slavery to Potiphar or in jail. But after that 13 years, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, he is redeemed and he's raised up from the pit. In a sense, that's what they call the jail. Raised up from the pit and brought before Pharaoh himself. He's brought before Pharaoh to interpret some disturbing dreams that Pharaoh has had by chance meeting when he's in jail. He meets Pharaoh's cupbearer, Pharaoh's chief baker, and he interprets dreams for them. And the word gets back to Pharaoh that he can do these things. So he's brought out of jail to interpret the dreams, which he does. He tells Pharaoh that God is bringing a famine on the land of Egypt. And he boldly then tells the king what he ought to do about that. A couple of things here about Joseph that shows his faith immediately. He's speaking to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh of Egypt, who is himself thought to be a god and telling Pharaoh, you're not powerful over Egypt in a sense. God, my God, is the one who's controlling things and going to bring a family. First of all, that's a slap in the face. And then second of all, let me tell you how to handle this. Me, this prisoner, let me tell you, king, how to handle things. Well, Pharaoh sees the spirit of God working in Joseph's life. And he's moved by Joseph's faith, so much so that he believes Joseph in what he's going to say and then puts Joseph in a position of authority to do something about the famine that is to come. Redeemed. Redeemed from the pits and as joseph comes to experience this redemption his past hurts his pain the wrongs suffered by his family the whole dysfunctional family picture he puts them behind him now this is an amazing thought think of the scars wrought by this that wrought upon this boy Slave in jail, 13 years, seeing evil after evil. How is this even possible? How can someone let go of that hurt and that trauma? Quite simply, Joseph looks back upon all things and he sees that his God, the covenant God of his father, Jacob, has been with him. And he sees the hand of God working in all these events. Back in chapter 41, I'm just going to spring back there for a minute, in verse 50. After he's raised to a position of authority, he gets an Egyptian wife, and he has two sons. And this is the first sign we see that Jacob, um, I'm sorry, Joseph has been all along resting in the providences in the sovereignty of his God who is steadfast in covenant love. Look at the names he gives uh, his son. Joseph called the name of the firstborn, verse 51, Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all the hardship of all my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of Of his affliction. Now, notice, Joseph doesn't necessarily forget about his trials. He knows of the affliction, he knows of the atrocities committed by his brothers, but God has let him forget in a sense. He's allowed him, he's enabled him to let them go because he sees a God who is working behind the scenes. It's actually ironic that he names his son Manasseh. God has allowed me to forget. Guess what? Every time he mentions Manasseh, what is he going to think of his brothers and his trials? So he's not really forgetting. He can't forget. But he's moved on. I love what author commentator Ian Duguid has to say about this passage. Listen to his, his words. He says, you simply don't forget an experience of life-changing suffering. You can't. Those scars will mark you indelibly for the rest of your life. Yet what God does by His grace is to take those ugly wounds and reshape them into a beautiful part of a tapestry of purpose and blessing that He is weaving in your life. He can overwhelm the painful memories of your past with the wonderful memory of His greater faithfulness and grace to you in the midst of all your pain, and with the assurance that He will bring glorious good even out of your worst suffering. God is a God who can redeem our hurts. And as we see in the life of Joseph, it'll come even more clear when we go forward. He isn't, even has a purpose in those hurts. And the evil that befalls us. Joseph has been through a lot. But he sees the grace of God active in all these things. God has made him fruitful. Has blessed him through his afflictions. Joseph pulls back the curtain and he sees a bigger plan. And that's important for what is to come in chapters 44 and 45. God has redeemed his afflictions, and indeed, God is doing the same for all his people. We'll say more of that in a little bit. Back to chapter 44. As we open up chapter 44, remember he went into slavery. He is thrown into the pit by his brothers originally at 17. Joseph is now a man of 39. 22 years has passed. And he's come face to face with the wicked brothers who have coldly sold his life. And even in this, we see the providence of God operative. In fact, the whole story of Joseph, as we read through, at times it's not clear what God is doing. It doesn't say, well, God did this and God did that. But we see the providences of God continually from the very beginning. We see the providences of God even in a bad father, Jacob who is showing favoritism to one son that brings hostility among sons, which causes Joseph to be sold into slavery. It's a providence of God working in the evil of men. We see the providence of God in the the rising jealousy of the brothers. We see the providence of God in how Joseph finds his brothers because they're not where they're supposed to be, but somebody he runs across by chance tells him where they are. We see the providence of God with Ishmaelite merchants happening to be there right at the moment that Joseph's thrown into a pit. We see the providence of God with Joseph being sent to Potiphar's house, captain of the guard. We see the providence of God uh, when he is wrongly accused of rape and ends up in jail because he should have been put to death for such a thing. But he ends up in jail, and not just any jail. He doesn't end up in a common jail. He ends up in the king's jail where he meets a cupbearer and a chief baker, a pharaoh. He interprets their dreams. The list goes on and on. Things that we might gloss over as chance, but they are clearly the providence of God. God directing events for his greater purposes. Now, what do I mean by the providence of God? I think there's a great definition given by Wayne Grudem. Uh, He says, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. And number two, he, cor- he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. This is what we mean by the providences of God. He directs his creation and the characteristics he finds in the things that he created. He directs them to carry out his ultimate purposes. So here we find Joseph in Egypt, raised to a position of authority, second only under Pharaoh. Now, certainly when he's brought back out of the jail and put in his position, what could he have done? He could have traveled back and seen his father. I'm sure he would have been allowed to see his father and his brothers and try to put this whole thing aside. It seems Joseph has no desire in the names of his sons. It seems like he's moved on. Ready to let those things go. But God has a different plan. And in the time of famine, he brings Joseph's brothers to him. Not only do they come to Egypt to look for food, but they come directly before Joseph. And this brings tight the tension of the story. Because when they come to him, they don't even recognize him. And the tables are now turned. Joseph is in this position of authority. He could do with them whatever he wants. And the reader is wondering, is it going to be revenge? Is he going to get his pound of flesh? But it's not revenge that Joseph wants. He desires something far more valuable, something that will be more costly to him. He desires restoration. He desires reconciliation. And indeed, that will be costly for him. He has to let go of his deep pain. He needs to let go of his fears. He needs to forgive and once again trust. And as we see as the story plays out, this is not something that he rushes into. But he hatches a plan to test his brothers. He wants to know, have they changed? Can they be trusted? Is restoration a possibility? Now, on the brothers' first trip to Egypt, they show up without their youngest brother, Benjamin. And Joseph wants Benjamin in Egypt. It's part of a plan he has. So he orchestrates things to get them to bring Benjamin back. He accuses them of being spies. They tell him their whole story. He finds out that they have a brother, Benjamin. He says, all right, prove you're not spies. Bring this Benjamin back to me. And he sends them on the way. But keeping one brother, keeping Simeon on hold just in case, uh, kind of taking a deposit so they'll come back. But when they go back home, they show up to Jacob and they tell Jacob this whole story and tell him that they have to bring Benjamin back. Jacob is none too fond of the idea. Benjamin is Jacob's new favorite. He's the only son remaining of his beloved wife, Rachel. He believes that he's already lost the other son of Rachel, Joseph, who was previously his favorite son, and he's not ready to let go of his next favorite. He doesn't realize that Joseph's alive. Again, going back, you know the story. The brothers don't tell their father that they threw him in a pit and that they sold him to slavery. They told him that he was eaten by wild animals. Jacob is reluctant to send Benjamin, but Benjamin had to go to Egypt. It is through Benjamin that Joseph chooses to test the character of his brother's. Again, the question is, will they turn their backs on another son of Rachel? Will they turn their backs on their father's favorite son? Or are they truly repentant? The test put before them is meant to reveal their hearts. You know, God's been known to do that for us as well. To put before us a difficult test to reveal to ourselves what it is that we truly value. I think about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. Uh, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in last time. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness, there's that test, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests his people to find out where their hearts are, and and Joseph here testing the hearts of his brothers. Now when Jacob and his family again run out of food, after much coaxing, the brothers get Jacob to finally agree to send Benjamin. Uh, And when they get to Egypt, Joseph goes about setting up the brothers. And this is where we picked up Uh, As I read chapter 44, the night before they had all dined with Joseph. They ate, they drank freely. Joseph put an initial test before them. As he meets Benjamin, he gives Benjamin five times more food than anybody else. Seeing if he can stir up some jealousy. But they pass. They gloss over it. They just feast. Everybody seems happy. But in the morning, as I read, as they make ready for their return, as no doubt they were encouraged by the reception that they were given. They're encouraged by the fact that they've gotten new provisions. They're encouraged that they're all going to go back to their father. Joseph has a plan, and he gives his steward some instructions. He says, not only give them provisions, but give them back their money in their sack and throw something extra special in Benjamin's sack. Give him my silver cup. When the brothers make their way out of town, they check their rearview mirrors, Camels do have those, you realize, right? Check the rearview mirrors, and they see the sirens blaring. They know they're in trouble. And they stop. And the steward repeats the words that Joseph gave them. Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this, this cup, that which my Lord drinks from? And is it not by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. Now, the reference to divination divination. If you're curious, back in those days, they would mix different types of liquids. And if they saw patterns, they could tell what was going to happen. Now, Joseph wouldn't do that. He wouldn't need to do that because he had the Lord speaking to him. But this is part of his ruse. He has to have a good reason for the suspicion in pursuing them. Now, the brothers, of course, as we read, were incredulous at the charge. Why would we do such a thing? The last time we were here, you sent us back with our sacks full of grain and you put our money in it. And we thought that was a little weird, but we brought it back. Uh, so so we didn't take money. We wouldn't do that. Um, they're confident of their innocence. So confident are they of their innocence. So much faith do they have in one another that they rashly declare whoever would do such a despicable thing, whoever would show such ingratitude for such wonderful hospitality. That person should be put to death. Um, brothers, what about people who would sell their brother into slavery? See, they're ready to put a thief to death, but they've kind of glossed over their sins in that statement. There's a little bit of a legalist in each of us. We're always so quick to pay little attention to our own sins, but the sins of somebody else, oh, well, we want to shine a bright light on it. That's probably why reconciliation, why coming back to peace with someone else, is so difficult for us. We don't look inward. And for the moment, they're not seeing the incongruity in this statement. Now, aside from saying the thief should die, they throw in that they'll all become slaves. Now, the steward brushes off that offer. Uh, He says, yeah, we'll do what you say. Only the thief will become a servant, not all of you. So he just goes right past them. The others will go free. He wants to set up a situation. They quickly lower their sacks. They have nothing to hide, but what's there? Money. As the oldest brothers look first, they see the money, and they're thinking, what is going on? How is this here again? Are we going to be in trouble? But things, of course, are worse for Benjamin. The steward begins at the oldest, works his way down to the youngest. He knows where the cup is, but he's doing this uh, to kind of continue the ruse. And when he gets to Benjamin's bag, the cup is found. And for the brothers, this is a punch in the gut. Again, the conditions here are perfectly set up, orchestrated by Joseph. He's setting them up for another betrayal. 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, they sold Joseph for 20 shekels. Here their own lives, their own freedom is on the line. What will they do? How will they respond? Well, verse 13 is where we lift off, left off. When the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, they tear their clothes and every man loads his donkey and returns to the city. They rend their clothes much like their father Jacob did when he hears the news that, their, that his favorite son Joseph is dead. They head back to Egypt as one. They don't leave Benjamin uh, to face the consequences alone. They don't abandon him. And what happens when they get uh, into Egypt? When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are the Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, "O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And he said to my Lord, we have a father. And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children. and His father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said we cannot go If our youngest brother goes uh, with us, then we will go down for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with my brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So they make their way back down to Egypt. They show up before Joseph, torn clothes and all. They bow down before him. This is the second time that they've bowed before Joseph. And if you've read this story before, you know the story begins. Part of their hatred of Joseph is that Joseph has dreams that one day they would bow down before him. Two times now, unknowing to them, they're fulfilling Joseph's dreams. When Joseph sees them in their torn clothes, perhaps he's thinking, there's hope that they've changed because it's a sign that they are grieved that their brother may end up in slavery. Joseph claims, again, that he knows their guilt because he's practiced divination, again, part of his ruse. And at this, Judah comes to the fore. He won't argue the charges. How can he? Even if they're set up, what is he going to do? Call them liars? He's in no position to bargain. Judah's confession, God has found out our guilt. And what is he doing there? Is he claiming that they're guilty for stealing a cup? Of course not. They're innocent of that. But I think what we see here is that Judah is confessing the guilt of the brothers and what they had previously done to Joseph. Back when they meet Joseph the first time and they see the difficulty that he's given them, accusing them of being spies, the brothers talk amongst themselves and they say something very similar. They see the Lord working to give them just deserts for their evil and their wickedness. One has to think how much guilt has been hanging on their heads these 20 plus years. They see all their trouble as coming from the hand of God. Their secret sins have found them out, they've come to haunt them. This is not mere chance. God is disciplining them, judging their sins. Does God always work this way? Every time that we face difficulty, is God repaying us for our sins? Now, if we're His through His Son, Jesus Christ, what do we know is true? Our sins are forgiven based on the completed work of Jesus Christ. They've been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And God will in no way count those sins against us ever again. But God does at times discipline us for our transgressions. But it's not as a judge, but as a loving father. Disciplining us, correcting us for our own good. But not every bad thing that comes our way is even discipline. Look at the life of Job. Job was a righteous man who had not sinned against God and what befalls him? Great evil, great tragedy, as in a day he loses all his possessions and his family. But in Job's case, I would say in in, in, in the case of every child of God, even that is meant or orchestrated or ordained by God for the strengthening, for the good of his people. Every test we face is from the hand of a sovereign God who is refining us. I read 1 Peter 1. We don't have time to go to these other verses, but write them down. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and forward talks about testing for our good. James 1, verse 2 and forward. Another set of verses that talk about God being sovereign over our tests for our refining and our good. Judah confesses their guilt. And again, he offers up all the brothers as servants. Notice there's no more talk of anyone dying. Now that he knows that Benjamin's life is on the line. But all the brothers becoming servants, wouldn't that be? be a just punishment for their sins of the past. Maybe that's what Judah is thinking. But Joseph, of course, is unwilling to do this great injustice. Only the thief should pay. The rest should go to their father in peace. What irony. They'd find no peace if they show up without Benjamin. Joseph, again, has them right where he wants them. It's a situation not unlike 20 years ago. Will they turn on another brother? It is then that Judah boldly intercedes for Benjamin. That's what we get at the end of the chapter, verses 18 through 34, one of the longest discourses, or, or it is the longest discourse of Judah. And his intercession reveals much about his heart and by relation the hearts of all the brothers. Back in Canaan, when Jacob was reluctant to send Uh, along Benjamin, Judah made a pledge. And we get that uh, in his uh, discourse here. Judah made a pledge. He said, uh, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before you all my life. And now in this intercession, Judah is keeping his pledge. And there's great irony here. Unless you've read this story recently, back when they sell Uh, Joseph to, to the merchants. It's Judah's idea. Judah's the one who sells his brother and now here he is pleading or selling himself on behalf of another. But Judah's concern here is not primarily for Benjamin. His concern is for his father and this is something that is absolutely astounding. Judah And all his brothers save for Benjamin. They're castaways. They're meaningless. Back when, and you'll get to this passage soon, listen for this. When Jacob comes back to the land of Canaan and meets his brother Esau. Notice what he'll do. He'll march out his wife Leah and his maidservants and all those children. First. To Esau, and he'll hold back Joseph and Benjamin and his beloved wife Rachel. In other words, he's saying, You guys are expendable, but let me keep these ones close. This has been Jacob's life. Benjamin is the only one now that matters to Jacob. And Judah realizes this. He realizes how dear the only remaining son of Rachel is, and he pleads for his father. With Joseph. He doesn't want to bring grief to Jacob. Jacob's life is tied up with the boy, and he will surely die if the boy does not return. Judah cannot return without him. He's made a pledge and he offers himself. He begs to sacrifice himself for a brother more loved than himself. Judah has come to peace with the dysfunction. In his family, he's let go the jealousy that caused him to sell his brother, Joseph. Judah's changed. His heart has changed. And what brings that about? Again, I could see the providences of God. If you read Genesis 38, maybe you want to go there uh, this afternoon. Judah loses two sons of his own. He knows the pain of losing a son. He's confronted by his daughter-in-law, Tamar, with his own wickedness and sin. And he sees his unrighteousness. The Lord has been working things in Judah. And Judah is ready to offer himself for his brother, Benjamin. And Judah is the first person in all of Scripture to offer himself for another. In in self-sacrificing love, he offers himself for the sake of Benjamin, for the sake of his father sounds familiar one offering themselves for their brothers for the sake for the joy of a father and we'll come back to that thought in a little bit judah formerly hateful and jealous and selfish is no, now motivated by the love of another he's at peace with jacob's favoritism he'll never be the favorite and he's at peace with this and he is feeling shalom Peace is coming upon him and his brothers as well. A little bit later on in the Genesis story, we'll see uh, Jacob's declarations upon his sons. And we'll see that the kingly line will flow from Judah, who is not the oldest. But we see the marks of a king right here in Judah, right? In his bold speech, in his bringing himself forward for the sake of his brothers. In his self-sacrifice, and his servants. And God's been doing that as well in Judah. Now, why is the repentance of the brothers so critical here? Why is it so significant? Well, God has a plan in the Joseph story. It's the preservation and the preparation of a people for the praise of, of his glorious name. Back in Genesis chapter 12, with the calling out of Abram for, from Ur the Chaldees, we have these promises that were given uh, to Joseph's great great grandfather. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in all the families in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has covenanted with Joseph and his family. God has covenanted with the sons of Jacob. They will be a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed them. They will have a land. They will have a hope. God will be their God. They will be his people. And God, through this mess, this dysfunction, this evil, is working to preserve the covenant family through this time of famine. And that's why Joseph had to get to Egypt. And that's why things were so messy. But God is also preserving the nation from intermixing. Also, going back to the Judah story, Judah marries a Canaanite. Not supposed to be done in Israel. Moving them to Egypt, you will see, will get them off in their own corner of Egypt where they won't intermix with other peoples. The third thing that God is doing is he's preparing them. promise given to Isaac uh, in chapter 35 and verse 11 is that God is making a community of nations, a harmonious people, a company of nations. And the word for company is the same word. If it's translated into the Greek, it's the same word that is church. Uh, He is making a church, a unity, a family of these people.
1: And you can't have
0: that if brother is fighting against brother and they're living in different parts. God is bringing them back together through this repentance and this reconciliation. He needs uh, a family of solidarity. He needs brothers who will be compassionate to one another. God is building a company of peoples. How did Joseph receive the intercession of Judah? Joseph, chapter 45, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that all the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do you do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive uh, for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all of Egypt. hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Then I will provide for you for there is yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen hurry and bring my father down here and then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon him uh, upon them after that his brothers talked with him Judah's intercession the signs of his repentance his moving And the half of Benjamin moves Joseph deeply. His repentance paves the way for restoration and reconciliation. And that's the focus here in these chapters, as I've mentioned. Again, this is part of what God is doing in all this mess and in the famine. Joseph sends all Egyptians from the room, and he reveals himself to his brothers. He weeps. He's wept before. Uh, They didn't catch him, but this time they see him weeping. The brothers, what do you think they're thinking? They're thinking, he knew all this from the beginning. He's been setting us up. This is behind all the testing. Now he's going to get his revenge. So at first it says they can't speak. They're astonished in his presence. They tremble at his presence. They're wondering what is going to happen. But Joseph calms their fears. And in the words that he has for them, it is a beautiful picture of forgiveness, of redemption, of reconciliation, all enmity has been put away. And again, this is amazing when we think about all that has befallen Joseph in the land of his affliction. But Joseph is not bitter. And it's only possible because Joseph has some good theology. <laughs> Number one, he sees the repentance of his brothers, the change of heart. He receives it as genuine These are not the same guys that threw him into the pit. Their words and their actions, they point to a changed heart. Their fruit is in keeping with true repentance. Now, in truth, repentance is not needed for us to forgive someone else. We can forgive without their repentance. But we do need the repentance of an offending party if we're to be reconciled. The relationship is broken without their repentance restoration is kept at bay, though we may forgive. We can forgive based on the grace that's been shown us. And Jesus spoke on that many times. Now, the second thing here is, of course, he sees God's hand in all of this. Again, we can go back to the names of his sons. He's said this before, but he sees that God is sovereign in all his creation. All things are under his control. As Jesus says to his disciples, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Lord's ordaining. And in the providence of God, all things that come to pass come to pass because he's ordained them. He directs all things, even men. For his purposes, Proverbs 21 talks about the heart of the king being like a river that the Lord directs wherever he wants for his purposes. And yet, men make decisions and freely act according to the desires of their own hearts and are responsible for their actions. Uh, Indeed, the uh, the brothers are responsible for their own sins. This is something we call concurrence. Now, Peter spoke of this on the day of Pentecost when he uh, talked about the sins that put Jesus to death. He says, men of Israel, this is chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's plan delivered up by God. But you crucified and killed him By the hands of lawless men. God ordains it. Men carry out that plan by the desires of their own heart. And they're responsible. Joseph sees this concurrence. This simultaneous working of the Lord and men that brings about God's holy purpose. God's will has prevailed. Joseph's brothers wanted to put to an end his dreams. When they threw him in a pit, they would never bow down. God says, oh, yes, you will. And it will be for your good and for your salvation. The holy people survive the famine, just like Noah survives the flood because God ordains and orchestrates it. Joseph's statement here is nothing less than the same statement we find on the lips of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.28. We know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. Everything, calamity and blessing, works for the good of God's people. The story closes with Joseph telling them to go to the Father with good news. He tells them to gather everyone and come back to Egypt so that he might provide for them as five years of famine yet remains. He weeps over them all. Joseph has longed for this restoration of fellowship with his brothers, and now he has it. That's humbling. Do we weep over our broken relationships, especially when somebody's greatly wronged us? Do we weep and desire that restoration? Joseph has, and now he has it. After Joseph's reassuring words, embracing his brothers with with weeping, then and only then, so they believe that they've been received and they begin talking to him. The covenant family has been reconciled. The life, of, the life of Joseph perfectly illustrates the overruling providence of God. We have to pause to consider its relevance in our own lives and our own struggles that we encounter. Joseph is clearly the victim Victim of evil time and time again in his own story. Now, truth be told, he might have been a little bit of a jerk when he was 17 years old and might have asked for a little bit of hazing by his brothers. But thrown into a pit and sold his land, that was going a little bit too far. Joseph, all the time in Egypt, perhaps questioned his God. Why? Why has this happened? And certainly, we've been there. My God, what are you doing in this mess? But in the end, Joseph clearly sees the hand of God working in his trials, bringing good out of evil. And this is crucial. The certainty that God's will and not man's was the reason for everything that befalls him. Without this, this reconciliation, this restoration we see here would not have been possible. No doubt Joseph had consoled himself many times with the thoughts of God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of a covenant-keeping, a loving God who is ever faithful. Now, with the same eyes of faith, it is possible for us to forgive those who trespass against us, a reflection on God's sovereignty, pondering what he is up to in the midst of our messes, a God who is willing to bring beauty from ashes Good from the most wretched and terrible experiences in our lives. That's our hope. Now, Of course, it's not always that easy. We're in the middle of it. We can't see the end of the story from where we are. And that's what's so wonderful about this story of Joseph is we get the end from the beginning. We see God's good purposes working in tragedy and evil. I have a question for you this morning. Who are you like in the story? This is again a wonderful picture of how to deal with sins, with the sins of others, with our own. Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive? Do you need to seek their forgiveness and repent of your sins? Where is God working reconciliation in your life? One last question. Do you see the gospel here in this story? In this sin? In this dysfunction? Sin and dysfunction is a reality this side of the fall, right? What is our hope? Judah offers himself up as a slave for his brother. And it paves the way for reconciliation. Reconciliation. We, too, have a wonderful substitute, one who bore the blame that we deserve. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was despised, was rejected, was afflicted, became servant of all to free us from sin and to reconcile a people to God and reconcile a vast people, nations, one to another. In sending his son into the world, God had a picture of one harmonious company of people. Ephesians 2, another passage you might want to look at today, is a great picture of what God has been doing in reconciling people to himself and to one another. Our God is a God of reconciliation, and Christ our only hope for broken relationships. Now in truth, this side of glory you might not see that restoration that is promised or hoped for. But for for brothers and sisters in Christ, we are promised that one day we will be a glorious company, a unity before the throne of Christ. So restoration, though we might not see it now, is promised and is coming. May the Lord find us faithful until that day. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, We do thank you for the message of hope we find in the story of Joseph that in all things you're working for the good of your people, those you've called according to your purpose and working for the glory of your name. We thank you, Lord, for the glimpse of the picture you have of a unity of peoples and how you are working even in our difficulties and our broken relationships now to bring a reconciled people. Oh, Lord. Uh, May we find a hope of that restoration in your son. May we weep for it and long for it as we've seen in the life of Joseph. We pray these things in Christ's name.